Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us, whether live right now, on demand later, or you're listening to the podcast, days, months, years. Welcome to week two in our mini-series out of the rarely read, rarely preached book called Philemon. Now, this story is about forgiveness. This story is about reconciliation. On the ground, in real time, in real life. This is a real case study in unity and forgiveness in the kingdom of God working itself out on earth as it is in heaven in one local church. Now, again, let me set the table. Paul is writing to a man named Philemon who lived in a town called Colossae. He's part of the church that Paul wrote the book Colossians to. Philemon was a great man of wealth and like every other wealthy person in the Roman Empire, he was a slave owner. And one of his slaves' names was Onesimus. Here's how another, again, summarized the crisis that leads to this part of God's word. A slave named Onesimus had run away from his owner, Philemon. He'd run from Colossae to Rome in hope that he could just disappear in that huge city. Once in Rome, Onesimus, either by accident or by his own design, comes in contact with Paul. And Paul, of course, leads him to Jesus Christ and leads him to faith. Paul had already been planning to write a letter to the church uh, in Colossae. And so around 60 or 61 AD from a prison cell in Rome, Paul also wrote a personal letter to Philemon and sent Onesimus, the slave, back to Colossae. So the letter, catch this, was handed to Philemon from his runaway slave. Talk about tension and fear and concern and everything being on the table. So last week, and by the way, you've got to listen to all these sermons. They're like Lego. They all interconnect. So last week, we saw Paul outline uh, the very first three verses and our common unity in Jesus, his own personal example of humility and justice and, and injustice in his own life. And yet still he affirms Philemon's role as a leader in that local church and affirms that he's a Christian. Now, Paul very quickly keeps on working on their unity before he addresses the issue of disunity. He keeps showing everyone in this local church what they have together, what they've been given together, what Paul has been doing for all of them together, what they actually are doing right in God's eyes already together, before he calls for the deeper impact of the gospel which will cost reputation, money, comfort, social standing, and so much more. I know after last week, lots of us were sort of grappling. Well, it's going to get more interesting, not less. So Paul, after reminding the whole church about the peace of God and the mercy of God, they all share, but they don't deserve. And as he has already affirmed, there are radical non-Roman kingdom expressions that are starting to happen among them at this moment. Now Paul, in this short little letter, moves to a genuine prayer, to what we call intercession and thanksgiving. He holds this church up. He wants to keep them together, and he wants to prep them. This is divine conspiracy, by the way. This is a holy trap. So love will grow more and more, not less or less. See, salvation is not the issue here. It's sanctification. In other words, holiness. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn to Philemon, and we're at verse 4. Paul says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, did you catch it? I did not, the first few readings. Paul moves the conversation after verse 3 from we 
to Philemon, I. The, narrow, the, the letter narrows just to Philemon, though the whole church, of course, will hear this letter, and of course, later it becomes scripture. Now, let's start with that little phrase, if you're taking notes, I remember you. This, this is profoundly important. In the Old Testament, this is a spiritual statement. This is an act of someone placing someone in God's presence. The Greek word here, much of the time is translated, I mention you. So Paul is mentioning Philemon to God. And remember, it's so interesting too, that God is actually called the God who remembers. I think Zechariah, the prophet's name, means God remembers. God remembers his covenants. God remembers his promises. God remembers the cries of his people. So Paul is mentioning, is placing Philemon before God who remembers, which again shows that Philemon is loved by God, is loved by Paul, and this is not a salvation issue. Now implied in the remembering is the prayer specifically for Philemon. So we got a question to ask. What was Paul praying for Philemon in this very moment? And actually, larger than that, what was Paul praying for the church in, Col- in Colossae that he was helping lead? Well, we've actually got the answer because Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote down an amazing prayer for this church in the book of Colossians, which was sent just after or at the same time as this letter. And as we're about to see, what Paul had been praying in the, in the letter of Colossians for this local church has a direct connection to forgiveness, reconciliation, and the kingdom breaking out more and more on earth. So if you want to find the prayer that Paul's referring to, turn over to Colossians 1. Okay, thinking caps on everyone, ready? Before we get to that prayer, before we get to what Paul's trying to do in this local church and how he's going to move Philemon to face down slavery, you need to know the background of what this church was facing. The greatest threat to this church was not slavery. It actually was a group that we've talked about time and time again. They're called the Gnostics. They claim to be Christians. They sang Christian songs. They used Christian words, but they were not Christians. And oh, side note, Gnostics are alive and well in almost every church I've ever been in contact with. I watch them all the time online, and I'll describe that in a minute. Basically, the Gnostics teach that spiritual is good and physical is bad. Uh, The Gnostics back then taught that the inner self or the soul of each person is a spark of God that's forgotten its true divinity and needs to be reminded of its origin. Salvation is escape from the body, achieved not by faith in Jesus Christ, but by special knowledge. Okay, this is where it comes home. Salvation did not depend on freedom from sin. Salvation was freedom from ignorance. Oh, oh, how many leaders and pastors and thought leaders and influencers have you heard in the last 12 months say that salvation is freedom from ignorance, not freedom from sin? And they even quote Jesus and all sorts of other... This matters. So the Gnostics teach that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good, which of course implies that Jesus was just a guy and the Christ spirit landed on him and then left. So that destroys who Jesus is. And then the implication was since the physical is bad, God doesn't care what you do. So you can go sexually in any direction. God doesn't care. Eat as much food as you want. God doesn't care. Party on. God doesn't care. Your gender, irrelevant. God doesn't care because the true self 
is inside and separated from your body. This is fundamentally, by the way, loved in our culture right now and unchristian. Others who are Gnostics said the opposite. No, you need to beat your body in submission and be really hard on your body because it's evil. All of this is happening in the Church of Colossae. And if that's not bad enough, they're also worshiping angels. <clears throat> and also, they're starting to bring certain Jewish laws back and saying, if you don't do those, you're also not saved. So what does Paul pray for this church as he's trying to work out the divine conspiracy of salvation? He says, well, in Colossians 1.3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Oh my goodness, that's the exact same thing he says personally to Philemon. So we know this prayer is the same prayer for him and everyone else. He says, we thank God and we're praying for you because we've heard about your faith in Jesus. Okay, did you just catch it? Paul is already dealing with the false teachers. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God, spiritual and physical together, good. And Jesus' work, and Jesus' life, and Jesus' death, and Jesus' physical resurrection is the bedrock confession, not experience, not special knowledge, not freedom from ignorance. One wrote, and I've quoted it before, Christians believe that we're saved only through Jesus Christ. Well, what does that imply? Well, it's obvious that Jesus is a man, a human being like all of us. But if he's just a man, like the rest of us, he shares in our need for redemption. In other words, he can't help us. He can't redeem us. He's part of the problem, not the solution to our problem. So there must be some essential difference between Jesus and every other human being. If Jesus indeed is to be our redeemer. After all, Christianity has always insisted that Jesus is the solution to our problem rather than part of the problem. On the other hand, if Jesus is God and God alone and he has no point of contact with us, he can't relate to all of us in need of redemption. So his humanity provides the point of contact. And so you must arrive at the conclusion that Jesus must be fully human and fully God if he is actually to redeem us. Of course, this is violating all Gnostic teaching. So Paul says that this relationship with the true Jesus, not the false one, is producing in this local church heaven-breathed love. Okay, watch this. Paul is thanking God that Jesus is already working out the scandal, the, the, the beauty, the power of the gospel, where Jews and non-Jews and slave and free have now been brought into a new family. Jesus has given us together peace with God through Jesus. We together may approach God the Father with freedom and confidence together. We together are citizens of the new city. We together are members of the new family. We together are the building blocks of the new temple. We together are the church. And how does he define the church in Colossians? Here it is. Colossians 3.11. Here, in this church, all churches, there is no non-Jew or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, we already talked about last week how this statement already violates the whole Roman worldview already. It's the seeds of the new kingdom. But Paul now reminds them, not only is he thanking God what's already happening, he actually reminds them what's going to happen to all of them in the future. Remember, this is what Paul is praying for the church that Philemon is helping lead. Colossians 
The faith and the love that springs from a hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. So our faith and the love we're experiencing between each other is rooted in a hope that's stored up for us somewhere else in heaven. So our future hope is secure and it's the motivation to love down here. And where is our hope stored up? In heaven. And who's at the center of that environment? Jesus. See, Jesus is the center of the new heavens and the new earth. And notice our hope is shared by everyone in the church, not just some. And notice Paul wrote, you know all of this already. You're experiencing all of this already because you've heard the word of truth. Oh, let me just say this. Truth not perspective, truth, not alternative facts, truth, not I feel it's true, so it must be true, truth, not my truth, whatever that means. There is absolute truth. We today in the GTA, just like the church in Colossae, live in a world of relativism, which assumes that you can never know the truth because actually all of our cultural perceptions make it unaccessible to know the real thing because there's so much fog. No, we can know absolute truth because relativism relativism teaches it's only good if we feel it or it's only good if it works, but we can't really know. No, there is knowable truth. And Paul says you've embraced this noble truth and you got this hope and you love each other because of the gospel. Okay, let me do this again. (laughs) What is the good news of Jesus Christ? What is the center of every local church that's faithful? Again, let me quote this. The good news is difficult at first. And one person sure got it right when they said, we know the gospel is unattractive. The gospel is intimidating and repulsive to the natural unsaved person and to the ungodly spiritual system that dominates the world. The gospel exposes people's sin, our wickedness, our depravity, our lostness. It declares pride as despicable and works righteousness worthless in God's sight. The Bible makes it clear that people cannot be spiritually changed or saved by good works, by church, by ritual, or by any other human means. See, we're all taught in our culture that it's not sin, it's just poor choices. It's not sin, it's poor education. It's not sin, it's poor childhoods. We believe that we can fix all that is broken and reduce all sinful actions to our nature or or the physical or social. But that's not reality. Let me again be just clear. The Bible expressly says that no one is born good, not one. Just like the Gnostics, our society and many Christians say that we now know better. (laughs) And sin, that declaring something a sin is too damaging to someone's ego. It's too damaging to our self-worth. It's dangerous to call things sin because we're enlightened and we have better knowledge. No, (laughs) let us not make God a liar and declare that we are God because we know better than our creator. We must agree with God and acknowledge what he calls sin as sin. God gets to define the boundaries of sin and we're all born in sin. And every day, all of us as human beings break God's heart and his law and end up attacking ourselves, others, and him. Nothing in the world can change your heart. 
Nothing can change us as a person. The only thing that can deal with us truly is the person has the ability to deal with the root problem, and it's called sin. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And that's so incredible. And, and he saves us from our sin and he transforms us from the inside out. And Paul says, that is already true among all of you. Amazing. And I'm so excited about that. And then Paul says, so what do we now need to do now that is true? Well, Paul begins to pray. And this prayer in Colossians is setting the ground for the call in Philemon's church and his own family life to undo slavery as he knows it, but we're not there yet. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will uh, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So prayer request one. Now the gospel is clear and truth is clear and your hope is clear. I'm praying that you would understand the Bible better. I'm praying for right theology. Why? Because right theology leads to right action. This is incredibly important. He is praying that we would have truth understood with the help of the Holy Spirit. Oh, and why does he pray this? Verse 10, and we pray this in order that you may now live a life worthy of Jesus and, and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So right understanding leads to right living. Right understanding fuels holiness. Again, this is a conversation post-salvation. This is about Christian living. Now that phrase, a life worth living, is way more radical than we think. And when I preached out of this text, historically, I quoted this. One scholar writes, in a shame culture, which by the way, many of you who did not grow up in Western culture, you come from family-oriented shame cultures. In shame culture, people are taught, since they're born, that they have to be worthy of their family's name, they have to be worthy of their country, and worthy of their heritage. By contrast, many Westerners are applauded when they act in stubborn independence of their family or peers. Most cultures in the first century were close to the pattern of what we would call shame culture. Instead of insisting that Christians live up to the church's expectation, our tribe, if you will, Paul tells them they must live up to the expectations of the church's Lord, Jesus. They are not to live a life worthy of the church, but worthy of Jesus. That would be immensely powerful in a shame culture. In the Western world, it's far too often taken as nothing more than an option. Jesus is Lord if I feel like it today. But in Paul's world, to be a Christian, to confess Jesus is Lord meant to adopt a worldview in which you are bound like a slave to please Jesus in every way. Not to do so would bring shame on Jesus, whom you've confessed as Lord. In other words, Paul's saying to Philemon, this whole church, don't think you fully belong to this world anymore. You're now sojourners and temporary foreign residents of another land. We're pilgrims on a journey towards a new, better home. And as we journey through this life, we're called to honor Jesus and obey Jesus without question. They would live under the shadow of the idea that Jesus is returning and they want to honor him. Now, once again, Paul stops in the middle of this prayer and he knows something. This is impossible. We're not even at the, the master-slave conversation yet. This is, this, is not, this is not doable. It's too high a calling. There's not enough gas in the car to do this thing. We can't go 
we, we just can't take this journey. And that is why Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, prays verse 11. He says, I pray that you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so you might have great endurance and patience. So he says, I'm now asking for the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same power source that Jesus used himself to heal and cast out demons and raise the dead from, the same power that was released at Pentecost. I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to show up. Why? So we can have the power to what? Obey Jesus. Oh, have the power and the ability and no ability to say no to false teaching, the power to understand the Bible and the power to keep loving each other. And and what is the result of the coming of the Holy Spirit? Falling over cool visions? Nope. Patience and endurance. Oh, wow. We always are praying for more of the Holy Spirit, but we always think it's going to be... No, patience and endurance. Endurance, the dictionary says, is to experience pain and hardship without giving up. And patience is the ability to endure waiting or delay without becoming annoyed or upset, or or other to calmly per, uh, to preserve calmly when faced with difficulties. Who needs patience and endurance these days? Ask for the Holy Spirit. Oh, but remember, Paul's talking to a local church, and I love what Henry Nouwen, the great Catholic thinker, said when he wrote this: "Impatient people, this is going to get close to some people, are always expecting real things to happen somewhere else. Therefore, they always go somewhere else. But the moment is empty." Patient people dare to stay where they are. In other words, Paul's praying that they would have such power of the Holy Spirit, they would endure and be patient with each other and work it out in the church and stay even when it sucks. Well, Paul's not even done. He moves from thanksgiving to the gospel to his request for theological knowledge to Holy Spirit power. And then he again reminds them what they all share together. He wants to bring this back again. So he says, you've been rescued, you've been redeemed and forgiven. We joyfully, verse 12, give thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. The Father has qualified all all of you. And if you need to be encouraged today, be overwhelmed with gratitude today, just hear that again. You've been qualified, made capable, eligible, fit, ready, able. In other words, salvation is a 100% God act. He calls us, saves us, forgives us, holds us, cleanses us, takes the bullet, pays off the unpayable mortgage. And for who? Just the rich? Just for one group? Just for one gender? No. Slave, free, Greek, Roman, Jew, Scythian, barbarian, fill in the blank. God qualifies who he calls. And not only that, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's he's plucked us out of the devil's ownership. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Oh, and he's brought us in into the kingdom of the son that he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And see, this is where all these connections start being made. Redemption is a slave word. The word redemption in Roman times was the idea that you walked into a slave market and there was either a prisoner of war or a slave and you paid the price, you redeemed them so they could be free. And every human being is called a slave to sin in the Bible, a slave to death in the Bible, and a slave to the devil. And yet, God qualifies us 
galls us, and then redeems us. I love when one person wrote years ago, if God perceived our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was a political figure or political stability, he would have sent a politician. If he had perceived our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But God's perception of our greatest need involves our sin, our alienation from God, our profound rebellion towards God, our death. And so he sent us a savior. Okay, everyone ready? With all that on the table, this is what Paul is praying. This is what this local church knows already and is experiencing already in Jesus. And Paul's Holy Spirit uttered prayers are growing and he wants them to keep going in this. Okay, so back to Philemon. Flip the page or navigate over. Philemon 4 again. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers for your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. So he's praying all that for Philemon, the Colossian church. And now he personally repeats this to Philemon. He says, your love, Philemon, for your fellow Christians, amazing. You give, you pray, you help lead this local church. You love Christians from many backgrounds. It's just done so well, so deeply. And and I know a few years ago, pre-Jesus, you never would have done this. You're rich. You're educated, you've got now spiritual and economic authority, but you don't discriminate if someone's in Jesus. You're a living example of my prayers for the whole church, and you're living in what Jesus has done for all of us. And I'm still praying those prayers for you like I did in that letter called Colossians. But, 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 but. I have a few more personal prayers for you, Philemon. And I need to pray this for you personally. It's sort of like laser focusing in, because I actually know what I'm about to ask you. Hey, Philemon, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share uh, share for the sake of Christ. If you're taking notes, see that little phrase, your partnership with us? In, in Greek, it reads kononia. It's the word we use for church. Here's what Paul's praying. I'm praying, Philemon, that your experience of church would be fully realized. Now, this is important, not comfort, not what we're used to, the full experience of fellowship, to use the old word. And then he keeps praying, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, Brother Philemon, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Now, this feels, this word refreshment of hearts in English feels limp and weak, like a weak thing, but it's not. In Greek, it's a military term. When an army was forced on what they call a forced march, and they had to do it for a long period of time. And then they came to the end of the forced march. They are exhausted and, and dirty and tired and smelly and they need food and they need baths and they, they need entertainment. When someone refreshed them, that's when this word was used. In other words, Philemon, we're being told in this verse, was the best at this thing. He has the spiritual gift called encouragement. Actually, many people say he's the Barnabas, the son of encouragement for the church in Colossae. So this guy's a pretty epic, amazing guy. Now, here's where we start making all the connections from last week to now to getting ready for the much more difficult conversation next week. This is all a setup. Hey, Philemon. Hey, Pastor Phil. Hey, CEO Phil. If you love God's people so well, 
and you've got the spiritual gift of encouragement and you've experienced the grace and peace of God, which you know you cannot earn and you're already loving the Christian community so well and you're trying to grow in right theology so you live right and you're trying to honor Jesus because you don't want to bring shame to him and and you've already experienced redemption together with all this diverse group of people and forgiveness together and you're now all together living in the together in the kingdom of the Son and you're no longer owned by the devil, if this is all true, well, I got news for you, Philemon. Your slave Onesimus, who's standing in front of you right now, who's literally handing you this letter, he's now become a Christian. So what are you going to do now? And by the way, you're a leader in this local church, and they're all going to follow your lead, right? And more important, God is watching to see if you will allow his kingdom to break in a deeper way. See, Aaron, lean in. How far will you let the work of the gospel now go in your heart, Philemon? How far will you let the effects of the gospel affect your local church, Philemon? How far do you want the cycle to really be broken, Philemon? How much of the new heavens and the new earth do you want to break out in the old heavens and the old earth? In other words, Philemon, the kingdom of Rome or the kingdom of God? This isn't a salvation issue anymore. This is a holiness issue. How far are you going to let this go? Okay, let's stop there and let's pause. And again, as we always say, the scriptures rebuke us. They correct us. They train train us in righteousness and they encourage us. So, okay, what is God telling us this week and where is he leading us? Well, number one, this is critical. What we see out of both of these texts is the gospel has to remain crystal clear. The good news is not societal change. The good news is not freedom from ignorance, as our culture defines it. The good news is for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You actually want to know the true condition of the human family and our need? Just read Ephesians 2. As for you, you were, this is a description of humanity, dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, in those who, is, who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Jesus. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Societal change, social justice, human rights are not the good news of Christianity. They can be the fruit or the evidence of the good news working itself out in Jesus' name. But the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection, freedom from sin, that is the gospel. It is the only power to change a human heart, which then can change a family, which then can change a neighborhood, which then can change the world. Don't confuse them and become a false teacher by mistake. Don't become a Gnostic while you're still singing Hillsong songs, thinking that actually you're presenting the gospel and you're not. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me say this again, because we're, this is a series about forgiveness and reconciliation, and Paul is very systematically working this out. Two, I said it last week, Paul does it again. Unity is not decided by us. 
See, you can't get ready for forgiveness. You can't get ready for the kingdom breaking out more. You can't get ready for reconciliation if you don't know, if you don't see, if you don't believe that there are ties that bind us together that are actually deeper. See, our unity is outside of us. God the Father called us. Jesus died for us. Jesus took the bullet for us. Jesus physically rose from the dead for us. Jesus is actually praying for all of us right now. The Holy Spirit is in us, comforting us, convicting us, letting us know that we're his children, giving us the same access to Jesus who gives us the same access to the Father. We are family together. We are forgiven together. We're reconciled to God already together. Before we place filters on each other, white, black, brown, money, status, they support this political view, that political view. Start with brother, sister, elected by God, bought by Jesus Christ, filled by the Holy Spirit, part of my family, eternally connected to me. See, before we get to the forgiveness and reconciliation conversation, that is the starting point. That is the starting point. That is the starting point. The gospel has to be clear. Our unity has to be clear. And then before we get to the actual conversation about reconciliation and societal change and the kingdom breaking forth, there must be prayer. Paul understands this is humanly alien to us. We love offense as people. We love the fight as people. We do. It's in our nature. So what does Paul pray? Paul says, okay, I'm now going to invoke the presence of God. I'm going to pray that what started through the gospel and God-given unity keeps actually not dying but growing. So what does he pray? Well, he prays the prayer in Colossians and Philemon. And here's what I want to share with the church. And I did this when we did a series on Paul's prayers. You can name and claim these prayers for yourself in this church. Why? Because these are included in Scripture and these are universally true. Most things you cannot name and claim. This you can. What does Paul pray? He asked God to fill Philemon in that local church with the will of God through spiritual wisdom and understanding. As David Garland once said, Paul recognizes that what his churches need most, most, is to grow in biblical knowledge that will govern their faith and their decisions. So prayer one before forgiveness and reconciliation is that God through his spirit would continue to form us by the word of God and we'd live under it, not over it. Second, he prays to be strengthened with power, all power, according to his glorious might, so we might have endurance and patience, staying power, staying power in the Holy Spirit, which again brings unity. And then third of all, he prays that there'd be a deep understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. In other words, there would be a great fulfillment of God's plan for the local church. So he prays right theology, right spiritual knowledge, holiness, spiritual power, thankfulness, hope through the work of Jesus Christ, endurance, patience, right belief, right theology, right action. See, this forgiveness reconciliation thing won't even have a chance until all this shows up. So, that's week two, (laughs) and a very, very needed letter in our time. So, let's take a moment, and we'll we'll do this at Sanctus Church. If you don't belong to Sanctus Church, of course, you can join us in prayer for your own community or your own walk. 
But let's pray a few things together. Number one, here's our prayer. Lord, help the gospel be clear in our church. And if any of us are starting to edge off the gospel, Holy Spirit, show us what it is. Number two, we continue to pray that you would show us our unity in the most profound, uncomfortable, beautiful ways. Continue to show us the ties that bind us together that are eternal. God's election, Jesus' death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit's presence. Brother and sister, may this continue to be worked out. And lastly, we're going to pray this. God, fill this church with right understanding, spiritual wisdom in Jesus' name. Number two, Holy Spirit, we ask for you to come and do the impossible among us and produce in us two things we don't like, endurance and patience, biblical staying power in Jesus' name. And third of all, we are praying that the will of God, the desire of God, the dream of God, the direction of God for the local church would be fully experienced. All of us right now have to even lay down our expectations of what that means because we all have things in our mind of what that box looks like, but it's probably not fully your box, Lord. So just lead us and guide us and prepare us for the next conversation about forgiveness and then the conversation after that about reconciliation. God, do the impossible among us. Help us to be different than our culture in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen. See you next week.